This morning, I know we have a, uh, a lot of sickness and illness. I know my mother has about a pneumonia. We got others with pneumonia. Uh, Bonnie Mullins texted me this morning, said her dad's in good shepherd with pneumonia. Guan just out of the hospital uh, with pneumonia. And so uh, what, what happened with the pneumonia shot? I don't know, you know what went on with that. But uh, anyway, it's good to see everybody who is here this morning. Do want to make one mention, ladies, teenage girls. Uh, it was mentioned to me that... Uh, uh, they would need some help in uh, serving for the Sweetheart Banquet this Saturday. So if you can help uh, Saturday, see Ann Brown or Carla Dublin and let them know. I know they would appreciate your help this Saturday for the Sweetheart Banquet. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 22, our writer says, Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. For I have written you only a short letter. Now, for our regular members, you may be thinking to yourself, if it's such a short letter, why has it taken us this long to get through it? And that is true. It was May the 5th of last year when we began our study in the letter to the Hebrews. 30, counting today, 31 Lessons that we gain from the book of Hebrews. We've used as our theme, encourage one another. And we've used as our theme verse, chapter chapter 3 and verse 13 that says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that no one may be deceived by sin's deceitfulness. But we have come to share in Christ if we hold firm to the end. The confidence we had at first. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a lot of words, and sometimes I can't get all of that. So if we could just stick with the first little part, but encourage one another daily. That's it. If we could just encourage one another daily. And we looked at the very beginning about the purpose of this letter. Why, Why did the writer feel the need to write this letter? And it's because many of his readers were on the verge of giving up their Christianity. In fact, some of them already had. And he is trying to convince them not to give up. And we were talking about that really, specifically, many of them were going back to their Jewish traditions. Going back to their Jewish way of life. And he comes along and says, why would you do that? And we talked about how that, you know, specifically, that doesn't apply to us. There's not anybody in this room who is on the verge of going back to Judaism. I don't think. I don't think there's anybody here who's on the verge of going back to their their Jewish roots. Going back and obeying the Old Testament laws and, and all those kinds of things. Nobody in here is about to do that. But we may have some folks in here who are on the verge of giving up. Who are on the verge of giving up their Christianity and just going back to what the world has to offer. may not be Judaism specifically. So what the writer says applies to us as well. It's very applicable. It It has meaning for us. Why would we go back to what the world has to offer? Because the world doesn't have anything to offer of any value. But what we have in Jesus Christ has more value than anything we could ever 
imagine. Many start and give up along the way. We know. You can look around this room, those of you that have been here for a while, maybe those of you that haven't been here for that long, you can look around the room and see the empty seats of people who started. Some of them came up rather quickly. You remember the parable of the sower that, you know, the, the, the one that is found on the rocky soil and it grew up very quickly and then the sun beat down on it and it just fried away because it had no roots. We've seen that. People who very quickly gave up, came for a little while and kind of thought, and then for whatever reason got drawn back into their old way of life. And then we've seen some more inexplicably to me who were faithful for a long time, faithful for a great period of their lives, and then all of a sudden gave up, quit. And our writer is encouraging us not to quit. He's encouraging you and me individually not to quit. And he's encouraging us to encourage us not to quit. And so this morning what I wanted to do is think about some of the things that we uh, have talked about. Just do a little review. Some of the main, hit some of the main topics as we go along. But I wanted to start in chapter 9 and verse 27. Where the writer says, and I mentioned this when we were there. I think this is the first scripture that I can remember memorizing. When I was a little kid. It may not have been, maybe I learned... You know, for God so loved the world, or maybe I learned Jesus wept, probably. That's probably what I learned first. But the first one I can remember is Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. For it is appointed unto man, and I'm doing King James because that's how I learned it. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. You see, our writer, throughout the letter, used the carrot and the stick approach. We know what that is. He's going to, and we're going to talk about in a minute, all the blessings we have in Jesus, all the reasons, positive reasons that we shouldn't give up. But he's going to throw in there occasionally the negative, if you want to call it that. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. It is a fear, scare, scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a all-consuming fire. All of these are talked about. The point is that there is a day coming when we will face judgment with God. And we want to be ready for that day. We sing that song sometimes. There's a great day coming. I love that song, don't you? There's a great day coming. Yeah. But you remember there's another verse of that that says there's a sad day coming. And we want to be the kind of people, we want to be in the kind of relationship to God that when we think about Jesus coming back and when we think about judgment, it brings a smile to our face. Come quickly. The sooner the better, Jesus. Come get us now. Take me home. And so he mentions that. And so that's why he writes this letter. So that we will be ready. And his readers will be ready when that judgment comes. 
He offers several suggestions or reasons why not to give up. We began in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where he basically said, Jesus is a superior spokesman. He said, back in the old days, and I'm paraphrasing, this is not King James. Back in the old days, God talked to the forefathers and the prophets. But now he has spoken to us through his son. You see, Moses through the law, or the law through Moses, or Moses through the law, had an important place in God's plan. The prophets that came along had an important place in God's plan. But his son, just because he is superior by nature, what he has to say is superior as well. And we remember that scene on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus is there and Moses and Elijah appear. And Peter wakes up. You know, he'd kind of been sleeping, dozing off. And he wakes up and he sees Moses and Elijah. And I think Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. And then there was Jesus. And Peter wakes up and he, you know, Peter, he's got to do or say something. So he said, Lord, let's build three tabernacles, little, let's have three shelters for you and Moses and Elijah. Essentially saying, you are on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Let's build three tents, you, Moses, and Elijah. Well, you know, that's pretty good company, isn't it? Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. That's pretty, you know, if I were to be added as a fourth to that group, that'd be pretty good. But as Peter says that, God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my son. Listen to him. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. How dare you put my son on equal footing with Moses and Elijah? No matter how great Moses was and how much good he did, no matter how great Elijah was and how much good he did, they are nothing compared to my son. Listen to him. And then in chapter 2, he says, pay attention to the word. And then he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So he says, Jesus is greater by far as a spokesman. He says he's greater than the angels in chapter 3 and 4. And in chapter 4 he says that we, through Jesus, we have a better promised rest. You know, God provided the Sabbath day as a day of rest for the Israelites. They talked about how that when they went into the promised land, that there was going to be a, a rest But it was not a total rest. And what our writer reminds us is is that God has promised us a better rest. In Revelation, it talks about that we will rest from our labors. Our rest will be in the very throne room of God, praising him for eternity. I I don't know about you, probably none of you ever get tired. But isn't it nice sometimes to just rest? To just rest. We have a lot of things going on here in our world and in our lives. A lot of bad things. 
a lot of difficult things, a lot of trials and strife and all these kinds of things. And God has promised us a rest from all of those. We love that verse in Revelation, do we not? That we are going to a place where there is no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears, no more death. Don't we long for that rest? That's so much better than anything the world has to offer. It's our hope that we have that is so much better. Paul often talked about in his letters about the hope that we have through the resurrection. That we too will be resurrected. And he talked about how the world offers us no hope. You know, if we don't believe in the life beyond, if we don't believe that God is going to take us to eternity, Paul says, well, then it's only in this life that we have hope, and that makes us pretty miserable people. If all that the world has to offer is, you know, a little enjoyment, a little comfort, maybe a little money, maybe a little pleasure, but when it's over, it's over. If that's it... And that's all the world has to offer. That pales in comparison to what God has promised us. The hope that we have and the rest that we promised. He goes on to talk about how that we can't give up because we have such a great high priest. In chapter 2 beginning in verse 12 and in chapter 4 beginning in verse 12. These are two of my favorite passages. Where he talks about how that Jesus was made just like you and me. He took on the form of his brothers. He was tempted in every way, just like you and I are, yet without sin. That's astounding. It's astounding because Jesus was God himself and came down to be with us. And not just be with us, but be made like us. He understands. He sympathizes when we have difficulties, when we're tempted. He knows what it's like. And he can help us through those difficult times. And then in chapter 8 and elsewhere, he talked about how that we have a much better covenant. Why would you give up? Why specifically to them? Why would you go back to the old covenant? The old law? When what we have now is so much better. You know, one of the things that I've gained from this study of Hebrews, as well as some studying that I've done, you know, recently in the Old Testament, is I've become convinced, and I've mentioned this to you before. I've become convinced that one of the purposes of the old law was to define... And magnify the separation between God and man because of sin. I never really looked at it that way. But the more I kind of looked at it and got into it and really realized what was going on in the book of Hebrews. You remember that right after Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? Banished from the garden. And there immediately became the separation between God and man. When Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law, you remember what God told him to tell the people? Do not touch the mountain. Not you, not any of your animals, because anybody who touches the mountain 
will die. Why? Because God was going to be on the mountain. And there is a separation between God and man. And then we have the creation of the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood and all of that stuff. And I think it was mentioned either this Wednesday or last Wednesday, maybe in the Devo. You know, a reminder that the most holy place that contained the Ark of the Covenant and on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that was considered to be the, the residence of God. But only one man, once a year, could go into the most holy place. Only the high priest, on the day of atonement, could go into the presence of God. On fear of death. Anybody did it any other time was going to drop dead. Don't you dare go into the most holy place. And if you think God was kidding, you remember Uzzah? This is me. Uh, this is also kind of reevaluate my thought on the whole Uzzah situation. You remember Uzzah? They were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which again represented kind of the presence of God. They're carrying the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. And God had told them specifically how to carry the Ark of the Covenant. There were supposed to be some poles that went through and only certain priests could pick up the Ark and they would carry it, you know. And so they're carrying it on this cart and the cart begins to, you know, whatever. And the Ark is beginning to fall out the back of the cart. And Uzzah, in our mind, or at least in my mind, Uzzah doing what was natural. As he sees the ark of God about to come crashing down on the ground, reaches up and touches the ark and pushes it back and is struck dead. Whoa. What is up with that story? But now in context, Uzzah presumed to touch the presence of God. Uzzah decided it didn't matter if there was a separation between God and man. He was going to do what God had said don't do. And he touched that ark. And he was struck dead. And I think about those things and I realize that part of the old law, part of the old covenant was to magnify and expose the separation The distance between God and man. And so that's what makes what our writer says in Hebrews so amazing. That we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our needs, but one has been tempted in all manner like we are, so that we may approach the throne of grace boldly. Whoa, what a difference! What a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Under the old covenant, man could not approach the throne of God, period. Under the new covenant, because of the blood of Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice, not only can we approach the throne of God, we can approach it boldly. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that amazing? Why, our writer pleads, why would you go back? Why would you go back to that?
Because we have it so much better because of the covenant that we have. We do have that perfect sacrifice. The Old Testament, you know, again, the priesthood, goats and bulls and rams and doves and, and all these animals over and over and over and over again. And I told you that when you really get into it and you really start studying it and you really start reading it, the priests were more butchers than they were anything else. With the sacrifice of these animals all the time and the blood that had to be dripping out from the tabernacle and the temple all the time, day and night. And our writer says, but we have a new covenant that is better because we have a sacrifice once and for all. Once and for all. There's not going to be any more sacrifices. We don't need any more sacrifices. The blood of Jesus was the perfect sacrifice to fulfill God's justice. Why would you go back to something else? And then in chapter 11, he reminds us we need to hold on because we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. All those examples of faith. Many of whom had ample opportunity to give up. Ample opportunity to quit, but they didn't. They kept on. And we talked about how that each one of us in our lives has our own cloud of witnesses. Those that we gain encouragement from. And so we looked at those reasons that he said why not to give up. But we also look at what our responsibility is to ourselves. Now we've talked about a lot about encouraging each other, right? If I see you about to give up, I have a responsibility to encourage you. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But ultimately, if I quit, if I give up, ultimately whose responsibility is it? It's mine. It's mine. So we have an individual responsibility to ourselves to do some things. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he warns us not to drift. Don't drift away. Now I think we can tell when there's signs that we're drifting. You know? When we're not as enthusiastic about worship. When we're not as involved or engaged in the church and the church activities and the things that were going on. When we don't have the fellowship and, 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 and support and community of the other Christians. We can tell when we're not studying God's word and our prayer life is, is not what it used to be. We can tell when we're beginning to drift and our writer says, don't drift. He calls us to be obedient in chapter 4 and verse 11. To obey God's word. In verse chapter 4 and verse 14, he reminds us to hold firmly to our faith. Our verse talks about holding firmly to the end. The confidence that we had at first. It's our responsibility to hold on. It's our responsibility to hold on firmly. In chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, go on to maturity. We have a responsibility to mature in our faith. We need to be studying more. We need to be praying more. We need to have a closer relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is our responsibility. That is my responsibility to do that. You can encourage me, yes. But that's my responsibility. Chapter 10 and verse 25, he says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You know, God... God did not call us 
to meet on the first day of the week as the family of God, as the body of Christ, just because he thought we didn't have anything better to do. Just so we could check something off the list. He called us to meet together because it is in this setting that we can encourage one another. That we can praise God together. That we can speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I can't encourage you if I'm not with you. You can't encourage me if we are not together. The early church understood that. You know, we meet on the first day of the week. But you remember how often the the early church met? Every day. Every day. Why? Because they needed it. And they understood that they needed it. They needed that encouragement, that strength from each other. Well, nothing changed in over 2,000 years. We still need each other. We need that encouragement. We need that strength. And maybe we don't meet every day, but we ought to meet every opportunity that we have. And the Lord has certainly said that we ought to meet on the Lord's day. On the day that he has set aside, we meet together as God's people. And our writer says, do not forsake that meeting together. Don't give that up because it's too important. He says in chapter 12 and verse 1, to throw off the sin. So easily entangles or besets us, King James says. That's a responsibility that I have. I know the sin that's in my life. I know the temptations that are in my life. And I have a responsibility to take those things off, to throw them aside. He says, run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Endure discipline in chapter 12. Be holy. He talks about in chapters 12 and 13. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. And then he goes on to talk about how that we ought to be hospitable and how we ought to love one another and that our whole lives ought to be a sacrifice of praise to God. And so we have a responsibility to ourselves to do the things that will keep us from drifting away. And I like in verse chapter 13 and verse 9. And we didn't look at this verse when we went through it. But in chapter 13 and verse 9 it says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. I don't know about you, but as I look around our world, there are a whole bunch of strange teachings out there. There's a lot out there. How am I not going to be carried away by strange teachings? By studying God's word. By knowing God's word. If I've studied God's word, if I know God's word, and you come along and you try to lead me astray with something weird, I'm going to say, uh-uh. Nope, that's weird. That's strange. Because I know what God says. Or if you even try to use God's word, there's a lot of strange teachings out there under the banner of Christianity. Well, if you use, we, you know, I know we've met, I'm sorry, it's been 30 something years. You know, I know I've told you everything a million times. 
But in teaching our children, especially in ourselves, it's not enough to teach them that the Bible is the word of God. That is not enough. If that's important. And that's where it starts. But we've got to teach them how to use God's word. How to apply God's word. You remember Satan quoted scripture to Jesus when he did it. And I told you that's the way cults work. Cults will target young people. And the cult leaders will use the Bible. And if a kid has been taught his whole life, the Bible is God's word. The Bible is God's word. Believe God's word. The Bible is God's authority, you know, and all, and all this. And then somebody comes along and is using God's word or misusing, but using God's word. And they don't know how to use it. And they're easily led astray. Well, it's coming out of the Bible, you know. I've told you. I know enough Bible that I could prove anything by using Scripture. I don't care how wrong it is. I could find some Scripture, twist it, misuse it, take it out of context, or whatever. If you wanted to say that the world was flat, and there's some out there to do. I could prove it to you from the Bible that the world is flat. Now, I may have to do some twisting and manipulating, but I could find enough scriptures that could prove that. If you wanted me to prove... So my point is, it's not just enough to know God's word or to know that the Bible is God's word, but we've got to know it and know how to use it. And teach that to our children, especially, and ourselves as well. So we have a responsibility to ourselves. We also have a responsibility to each other, and that's really mainly where we've been coming at. We have a responsibility, chapter 13, verse 1, to love one another. Love one another deeply, he said, sincerely. And then we've talked about encourage one another daily. As long as it's called today, 3 and 13. And in chapter 10 and verse 25, encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. What day? That day of judgment. That day when we will answer to God. And then 10, 24, that one that we don't like so much, spur one another on. Spur one another on. We have a responsibility to each other to spur one another on. We are. Remember, you know, the question was asked, am I brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. We are our brother's keeper. We do have a responsibility to one another. If we love each other, we will encourage each other. I've been in situations before as a minister and an elder now where somebody would say to me, it's none of your business. If it has to do with their soul, it is my business. And it's not just my business as a minister or as an elder. It's your business too as a brother or sister. 
to encourage one another and spur one another on. So as we wrap this up, all 31 lessons since May the 5th, all of it boils down to encourage one another daily. That's his word of exhortation to us. Encourage one another daily. And you're thinking, well, if you'd have just said that from the beginning, we'd have been done a long time ago. But he had a lot of other things to say in the midst of all of that. There may be some here this morning who have never started their walk with God. They've never given themselves over to him. They've never believed and repented of their sins, been buried with Christ in baptism, be raised to walk in a new life. If you've never started that, spur you on to do that. I have some in here who are on the verge. There may be things going on in your life, circumstances that we may or may not be aware of. And and you are that close to giving up. We want to encourage you. Don't give up. If you give up, what are you going back to? If you give up, what is the world going to offer you? Nothing. So if you're on the verge of giving up, we encourage you not to. And there may be some in here who think like, well, I'm never going to give up. You know, he's not talking to me. I would never think about it. God bless you. God bless you. Then encourage the rest of us. Encourage the rest of us to remain faithful to God. If you're here this morning in some way we can help or encourage you, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D. C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol dot com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 818- West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.